Now, what do revolutionaries do when they win, huh? When the blood has sunk into the fields and been washed from the streets, when the old flag's been torn down, the old ties broken, the old system thrown away. Listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respects to country and to all the elders, past and present, who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self determination. Today on the show, we'll hear a recording that was done back in late 2017 at Burning Books Radical Bookshop in Buffalo, New York, at a community event featuring Leslie James Pickering, who's the co-owner at Burning Books, and a former Earth Liberation Front spokesperson debating non-violent civil disobedience versus direct action tactics like property destruction with Rick Scarce, who's the author of the 1990 book Eco Worries, which was a research project on the radical environment movement in North America, including Earth First, Earth Liberation Front, Animal Liberation Front, and DA-focused ENGOs like Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd. Today's audio was sourced with thanks from the Final Store Radio. This is a debate that's been going on for a really, really long time. In 1987, when I opened up the first issue of the Earth First Journal, there in the letters to the editor, somebody was ranting about the tension between monkey wrenching, property destruction on one hand, and civil disobedience on the other. And it's going to become more so. We're seeing more and more activism. Uh, What happened with Dakota Access and Keystone XL and on and on and on. These are incredibly exciting things, and we're seeing more and and more of it. You've got somebody of the standing of Bill McKibben encouraging people worldwide to uh, commit acts of civil disobedience on behalf of the planet. It's a fantastic development, and in my mind, it won't be very long until we see more people moving into property destruction, what is now called direct action, uh, which, which in terms of vocabulary, I would suggest we, we use as a synonym for, for property destruction. Radical environmentalism, resistance environmentalism, ecological resistors have been labeled successfully as terrorists. That reality laid the groundwork for the labeling starting uh, uh, at least as far back as, as 2002, early in, in that year, when the FBI went before Congress and labeled radical environmentalists as the the nation's number one domestic terror threat. This movement, regardless of whether one is completely committed to civil disobedience or completely committed to property destruction, this movement has has successfully been labeled eco-terrorism, and that's very much in people's minds. The American ideology is such that private property, as we all know, is this sacred, sacred stuff. Out there in the American populace, private property is sacred stuff. Then there is the problem of the successes that the government has had with jailing birth liberation and animal liberation activists. I would suggest 
that the activists who have been caught and have been jailed are probably the most committed to be willing to commit serious crimes and look at monster jail time and now that label terrorism, right? The most committed people are locked away and you can't do very much at all when you're in prison. The future of the movement is in question when people commit acts of, of property destruction rather than civil disobedience. Not wanting to be associated with a quote-unquote terrorist group, folks are gonna stay at home. They're not gonna get involved in the movement, including in the, on the civil disobedience side. But I wonder if a whole lot more people wouldn't be showing up if it weren't for the stigma that unfortunately this movement has taken on thanks to property destruction. Um, if we commit destructive acts as part of our movement that we're going to be labeled terrorists in this case, right? But, um, but in the past it's been reds or uh, savages. There's always some kind of boogeyman name for whoever it is that the enemy is. And in this case, terrorism has been so undefined. The definition of terrorism has been whittled down in recent years to, to be very malleable to whoever it is that you're against. And, you know, if people were to back down from taking action that they believe is the right thing to do because of an issue like labeling, that would be a shame. Labeling isn't something we can avoid. It's going to be the most radical person in the room. And whether that person is committing actual acts of violence or property destruction, or if the movement is at a point where all you're doing is uh, signing petitions, it's going to be the people with the most radical words on those petitions that get called terrorists or whatever. Um, if we were to succumb to what our enemies call us and shape our strategies based on what our enemies identify us as, then we are defeated from the get-go. In a sense, it's a little bit of a badge of honor in a weird, ironic way to be that there is this thing called eco-terrorism, and it is this big focus of the FBI, which is an evil organization and a horrible history, and they've found what we're doing significant enough to prioritize us, which, in a weird, ironic way, it was reassuring, because I know that all the social justice movements that I've allied myself throughout history have been targets and number one priorities of the FBI. And to have that happen with the, with the ELF was, we must be doing something kind of right. Um, obviously the journalists weren't in favor of us, uh, the politicians weren't in favor of the movement, and that word never went away and is probably never really going to go away. But I would never suggest basing strategy on something like what nasty terms they're going to be calling us. And so looking really good and getting positive news coverage and getting every middle American to understand what you're doing isn't the main priority of the Earth Liberation Front. They realized that they would sacrifice some popularity and mainstream public appeal in order to do this extreme thing. Same thing with groups like the Black Panther Party. The concept of private property Colonialist society came in and imposed this idea of private property on the peoples that were living here. And, you know, I'd like to see it go away. I, can, I feel pretty safe saying that people involved in radical movements, especially the Earth Liberation Front, were um, and are working towards eliminating those kinds of ideas in our society. So, yes, it's going to turn people off if we attack their private property. I dealt with that personally on many occasions. There was a tree farm. Uh, that got burnt down in Oregon. 
um, that was had oh, the poplar farm, it was an action of the Earth Liberation Front, and I met face-to-face -face with people who worked there and had to lose some time at work because the building had to be remade. When the uh, Cavell West horse slaughterhouse was burnt down, that was slaughtering wild horses on public lands and selling the horse meat overseas, when the, when the underground burned that down, I got a phone call from the owner of the company screaming at, me at, at my house about how I burnt down, what I didn't, I didn't set the fire, but he was just saying I did anyway. But you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of people being frustrated and angered and feeling like we did something that was really horrible when property was destroyed. I would like to see this sacred nature of property dismantled, and I think that's part of the bigger objective that these underground groups are trying to create. I would disagree with the notion that you can't do or accomplish anything while in prison, and we can take Daniel McGowan, for example. Documentary came out while he was in prison, which he orchestrated. I can promise you that he wouldn't have been able to get an Oscar-nominated documentary produced on the Media Liberation Front um, had he not been facing that jail time and had the, the situation not gotten that severe. We see people like Mumia Abu-Jamal, we see people like Leonard Peltier who have accomplished, while they all should be free, please don't get me wrong, everyone should be free, but um, putting someone in prison doesn't eliminate them from part of our consciousness. And in fact, it, it draws us towards realizing that prison is an issue in itself. When people from the Earth Liberation Movement were sent to prison, um, it drew our movement directly towards recognizing all these other movements that had political prisoners too. All of a sudden, we weren't just looking at radical environmentalists and, and animal rights activists anymore, because they were alongside people from the black liberation struggle who are still in prison from that time period. And it broadened our perspective and made us work directly with all these other political prisoners, because now we were working on political prisoner issues. It's not a good thing to be in prison, but it doesn't stop you. Same thing with getting killed. It's not a good thing to get killed for a movement, but it does not stop the movement. Um, Sometimes it can be made to, uh, to, things like that can be made to draw more attention to the movement. When a movement goes beyond civil disobedience in particular towards property destruction or, or what might be considered violence, it's really no longer a reformist movement. It's not trying to make reform happen, right? It, it, the guy who, the director of If a Tree Falls, I would always say at these interviews like, afterwards to me in private, like, I just don't think that sabotage is going to change government policy on environmentalism. And I couldn't agree more. Like, sabotage is not going to change government policy. It's not intended to, right? It's, it's because you have a different philosophy you're enacting when you engage in underground struggle or guerrilla struggle or direct action or whatever you want to call it. You don't necessarily believe that policy change is possible or that if it is possible, that it's effective. And you've taken up some kind of other agenda to um, come one step or two steps or three steps closer to forcing the kind of change. Ulrika Mainhoff is, a, a, by all accounts, a violent, a, was a violent revolutionary in Germany. And uh, I actually wrote down a quote from her that I've, I'm obsessed with. Protest is when I say this does not please me. Resistance is when I ensure that what does not please me uh, occurs no more. Right, so you've crossed that line between protest and resistance, if you're involved in a group like the Earth Liberation Front or the Animal Liberation Front, you're not simply protesting. You're trying to force change. You're tired of asking people who are not listening and who are not responsive for the change. You feel the change is desperate and you're willing to push hard and take personal sacrifices like risking prison, like being labeled a terrorist.
you've decided to accept those consequences as part of, you know, being engaged in a larger movement that fights harder. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. So let's talk about a real-world example, um, the, the case of Ruby Montoya and Jessica Resnicek. On July 24th, they held a press conference in which they read a prepared statement while standing in front of the Iowa Utility Board. In the statement, they confessed to arson and other acts of sabotage along the Dakota Access Pipeline. And these were systematic, by the way. They did it over a period of, I believe, a couple of months. And it was a series of events. It wasn't just one or two. It was actually almost on a daily basis that they went and engaged in these acts. They stopped when they ultimately discovered oil in the pipeline and reached that point and then moved into a different direction. After they made this um, essentially confession to arson and other acts of sabotage, they then took a crowbar and hammer and began pulling off the letters of the Iowa Utilities Board signed before being arrested. They were released from jail the next day and charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief for damaging the signs. When asked what they wanted people to know about their actions, one of the things that they said is, we did this out of necessity and in response to a true calling from our hearts. We are in a dire situation with this climate spinning into chaos because of these corporations and the federal government that allows them to lead us further into the unknown as far as climate change is concerned. Anyone that's aware of this needs to be doing, I feel, everything that they can to prevent this downturn that we're in as far as polluting our home. How much time are they looking at? Well, I mean, I would guess that based on, depending on how many of the individual events that they could actually be charged with, close to life, I would guess, yeah. if, if all of them were added up. Yeah. I'd like to think they could be out there in public, educating people and getting more and more people out there not doing what they chose to do, but uh, doing what so many hundreds did along that pipeline route in terms of blockading it and forcing a really serious discussion about whether we needed that oil and our responsibilities to the planet and things like that versus Oh my gosh, there go the eco-terrorists again. I hope I made it really, really clear. I, I, I think our property-oriented ideology and virtually every other aspect of American ideology is severely out of line with what is right and good and proper for the vast, vast, vast majority of people and for the planet. I don't think that systematic destruction of a pipeline versus uh, systematic engagement and education and above board in your face activism of the sort represented by civil disobedience i don't think that the destructive approach is going to get us anything uh, there's massive money behind that pipeline the pipeline is going to be rebuilt vale <coughs> ski resort the extension of it into lynx habitat 50 million dollars of damage and it was it was rebuilt an arson fire in San Diego years ago. Millions of dollars to these condos that were being constructed. They were reconstructed. Animal lab after animal lab attacked. And the experiments are redone. Twice the number of trees being cut, right, to put the timber back in these cases. Twice the number of, of animals being tortured. 
No one, in the case that I went to, to jail for, no one in Pullman, Washington, had ever carried a picket sign in front of any of the animal experimentation laboratories at Washington State University. No one had ever tried to get their neighbors together to do a, a, a sit-in there. No one had ever done anything to try to educate the population. The break-in took place in the complete vacuum of information regarding the alternative. The authorities had a field, and theirs was the only story that got told. You know, and, I, and I think people probably react the same way. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's is an interesting case. I mean, they haven't actually been charged with any of those, even mm -hmm. though they admitted to them. And part of the reason that they suspect is because they were the least likely suspects. And the FBI is actually scrambling now, not knowing what to do with that. And, and you know, that was part of the reason why they came forward. What they said was they wanted to personalize this. They wanted to make it about them rather than simply having a nameless, faceless someone who actually took off one underground, whatever. They wanted it to be about them so that they could actually put a face to this. But they also inevitably will probably try and invoke a necessity defense, right? And say that this was an urgent situation that required an immediate response. And the one last thing about that is that they actually, um, when, when asked who their influences were, they referred to a whole series of civil disobedience actions, mm -hmm. right? The Plowshares movement, um, yeah. the, the Catholic, um, mm -hmm. a whole variety of different mm -hmm. Catholic activists as, as their motivation. And, and I think, you know, certainly from the way that they speak of it, they, they don't see it as violent, but they also don't see it as um, uh, anything really that's fundamentally different from civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. With the Earth Liberation Front, there are a lot, I would say, a lot of actions that happened around issues that have been protested locally. It wasn't always the case, yeah. because it's an autonomous movement, it's horizontally organized, who knows who's going to do what, when, and where. But um, most of the time, the actions actually were around issues that were uh, protested locally. But that's not to say that all of the people who protested it were going to be in favor of the, uh, the, the sabotage of the arson afterwards. But it is to say that the Earth Liberation Front did not see itself, and I think I can say this across the board for radical groups, in general, radical groups don't see what they're doing as the fix-all. Most of the time, people have ideas about what radicals are like and that they're unreasonable and that they think they know the only way to fix things. But every time I've looked at and studied movements, including being involved in them, it's always been a matter of we are a part of a bigger movement. We're not going to tell people not to do education anymore. We're not going to tell people not to do civil disobedience anymore. I may or may not keep doing civil disobedience while I'm doing direct action, but um, you know, I think this is exciting that we're doing sabotage or some kind of radical action. But um, and it's it's powerful in a way that I've never seen before. But never nobody ever thinks it's going to fix everything all at once. It would be totally irrational. So the whole concept of like. Um, coming in and just doing one thing in the middle of the night is going to solve the problem is really never the idea at all. Which kind of brings me to the, again, back to the point of the bigger idea of these radical direct action movements are that they're really not trying to fix things up here and fix things there on a case-by-case -case basis. They're doing actions where they can to build a movement that is hopefully someday potentially going to be strong enough to bring about what it is that we want to do. If we wait till the last, very last minute to use our last resort, we're saying, okay, we're gonna defend ourselves when, if and when it really comes down to it. Environmentally, that's a whole other question because 
what's left at that point. There's nothing left to the earth to defend at that point. But if, aside from vi- environmentally, if you wait till the last minute, guess what? You're not going to be prepared. You, you have to build an apparatus. You have, you have to build all the networks to create a movement that is actually fighting, which most of that, like 90-some percent of it, isn't actually fighting. It's, it's part of a bigger community of people fi- working together to build a, a really effective resistance movement. And if you wait until the last minute to like figure out where the safe houses are, figure out how you can get money, figure out like um, you know if, re- if, if literature is illegal, like how you're going to get that through and how you're going to get your message across, guess what? You're not going to be able to do it. We need to start building communities that are um, that are capable of implementing things like that through the civil society that we're talking about, right? Through what we're doing here, right here tonight, by having discussions, is that. You know, this, this idea of having a civil society where people can exchange ideas and hopefully we can progress in a, a positive direction for social change because we're able to talk and communicate. What they want is a divided and conquered community where uh, the people who are more on the peaceful side think the radicals are horrible and the radicals think the people on the peaceful side are naive and useless. And that's not effective either way. Like what we need is a community that's together and that while I don't find it worth my time to do what the other person is doing. I recognize the value of what they're doing, and together, maybe we all can create the type of movement in society that actually has a chance to progress. Are we simply dealing with the divide here between reform versus revolution? If we're talking about revolutionary change, Ward Churchill has said, with regard specifically to pacifist praxis, and he would include nonviolent civil disobedience in that, that it's a self-defeating strategy because it renders those who engage in it perpetually ineffectual, in which case they're largely ignored by the status quo, or ultimately they make themselves a danger to the state through their actions in a way that they become eliminated um, without any kind of reaction because they're not willing to use force of any sort to respond to them. So are we talking about revolution or reform? And if it is revolution, can civil disobedience be a strategy that brings about that kind of a change? I think we're talking about revolution, absolutely. And I don't buy what Churchill said there at all. The notion that more hundreds and more thousands getting involved in in a movement is somehow or another a sign of ineffectuality, it defies evidence. (laughs) The greater the number of people who are involved in movement, the greater the movement strength. So my argument would be the strength is in numbers. The strength is not in your firepower. I think the firepower begets more firepower coming back at it and is quite often ineffectual. The long game, what does it all look like at the end given some hypothetical confrontation between the the people and those in power, that's going to depend on the number of people, regardless of whether the people have decided to take up arms or not. And I would much rather be a part of a movement that is living its ideals at every step. I think it's going to be awfully difficult to walk back destruction and the underlying uh, potential for to go as far as violence if that has been a central part of the revolution that we're talking about trying to to create. 
I would say that like uh, reform is a good one to look at because it actually at this point if we could stop the totally inadequate protections that we have had for decades from, from being eliminated and that would be a positive thing sadly when you look at revolutionary movements you see that they don't throw reform out the black panther party is a great example they had several programs of course much less known than the violent confrontations they had with the police but well known within black communities and well known within the within the left community is that the black panther party had extensive what they called survival programs survival pending revolution programs they gave away free shoes they gave away uh, breakfast for children all the poor kids in the community would come and get breakfast from the panthers before going to school um, thousands across the country because the panthers thought you can't learn anything if you're starving in the morning they opened the first free health clinics in this country and those breakfast programs are the ones that coerced you know more or less the schools to have lunch programs and stuff that for low income kids so uh, when you look at revolutionary groups they're not trying to bring about change now and it's this concept of survival pending revolution realizing that revolution is kind of a pie in the sky utopianist idea uh, of having this perfect world afterwards you need to keep the people fed you need to protect the animals that are here now the environments that are here now that are threatened now even if your ultimate goal is to get rid of the system to get rid of capitalism get rid of property ownership and all these things in the meantime there are real consequences happening to real people so while fighting for the world that we want to live in for this bigger idea you're you're hopefully making gains along the way as well we're not just fixated on this idea of what the perfect world would be afterwards we're fixated on all these problems along the way which has spurred us to become interested in like changing society reluctantly spurred people like me and to become interested in like how can we accomplish this seemingly impossible thing of changing all of society so that it actually benefits all of us and the mountains and the rivers and the animals as well You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, we heard a recording of a 2017 debate on nonviolent civil disobedience versus direct action tactics like property destruction. With Leslie James Pickering, a former Earth Liberation Front spokesperson and co-owner at Burning Books Radical Indie Bookstore at burningbooks.com. And Rick Scarce, author of the 1990 book Eco Warriors Understanding the Radical Environment Movement, published in 1990 by Noble Press. And you can still pick up a copy of this online pretty much from most distributors. Today's audio was sourced with thanks from the Final Store Radio at thefinalstoreradio.noblogs.org. And you can find our Earth Matters podcast, including today's show, at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe. And why not give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced with the support of 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. Well, that's all for this week, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Well, me and my friends, we don't want chaos, we want to be free. Me and my friends, we don't want
and destruction We want liberty And it is so bad to want to take A bit more responsibility For the way that we act For the things that we do And for our communities How can you say we're the dangerous ones They're the ones waving bands And holding prison keys We're not the ones you should fear The only ones fighting your side we're one million marching gone A bit more than admission in hindsight Should have gone to war When will you wake up? We're not your enemies When every one of your hard-fought rights A product to be sold You took them for granted But people died for everyone I'm told and all each one was a little bit more rope Just beginning to wrap round your throat Will you help us tear the gallows down Or let yourselves choke? How can you say we're the dangerous ones They're the ones filming your every move on TV We're not the ones you should be Or the only ones fighting your side They'll shoot a man down with impunity Sort of countless civilians They're overseas When will you Wake up, we're not your enemy. We're taught to strive to climb as high as you can on that social scale. Taught to compete and to trample the weak and despise the poor and the frail. And if we succeed, then you'll get to breathe the rarefied air at the top. But I don't want to trample anybody nor be trodden on How can you say we're the dangerous ones We're the ones waving banners and holding out hands We're not the ones you should feel The only ones fighting your side So put down your paper, turn off the TV Come walk outside and pretty soon you'll see Just who is your real enemy Violent thugs who wanna smash up the system And petulant kids with chips on our shoulders And nothing fair to do But our worst is naive to think things could be A little bit fairer and a little bit more free The world are all by governments and big companies And eventually to have a society without hierarchy G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe you are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice. But neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia. 
brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal embassy on the lawns outside the old parliament house. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.